0: Hey there, I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. Today, we're bringing you an excerpt from a recent episode of the Hot Take podcast, which I co-host with Mary Anaïs Hegler. In this episode, we talked to investigative journalist Antonia Yuhas about her work connecting the dots on oil and war. It's a really, really interesting episode, even if you think you know all about that subject like I did before I talked to Antonia. (laughs) I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you want to hear more of these sorts of conversations, check out Hot Take wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also drop a link in the show notes. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail, I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not gonna happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing EarthBreeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, Earthbreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring. There's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested hypoallergenic free of bleach and dyes so it's perfect for every load you'll never run out of detergent again thanks to earth breezes easy flexible subscription you can adjust pause or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties and you save a whopping 40 percent when you subscribe plus shipping is always free and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space it also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life, and the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save forty percent. Forty four zero. Go to Earthbreeze.com/drilled. That's e-a-r-t-h-b-r-e-e-z-e.com/drilled for forty percent off your subscription. Antonia Uhas,
1: welcome to Hot Take. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be on with both of you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah,
0: us too. Do you want to give us a little bit of intro um, to yourself and and kind of how you started looking at the oil and war intersection?
1: Sure. Um, So I am an investigative journalist. I'm the author of three books, and I also am an analyst. My background is in public policy, both uh, my undergraduate and graduate work, and I worked as a legislative assistant for two US members of Congress. And um, I didn't find oil and war. Oil and war found me the same way the oil industry found me. I had been um, focusing on issues related to corporate power Basically, I left Capitol Hill because I was um, disenchanted with the role of corporations in policymaking, and that had nothing to do with my offices that I worked for, in particular, which were great offices. It was just the um, the overriding uh, uh, power that I just I think is you know going in as a young twenty six year old, um, I just didn't anticipate, and so I left to address those issues of, of corporate power over. Democracy. And as the years moved into the Bush administration, the oil industry was just so predominant within that administration that you couldn't write about politics and corporations or think about them without thinking about oil. Um, And then that just became, unfortunately, it never went away as my driving. Uh, concern because it didn't go away as an issue and that then melding investigative journalism with looking at oil and the way oil overlaps with everything became my career basically oil as it winds its way through human rights climate justice war peace health you name it um became my frame but for a good solid i don't know a lot of for many 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 years um Oil and war dominated a lot of my thinking because it's it's what dominated uh, the Bush administration and the oil industry with the Ar- wars in Iraq and
0: Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense.
2: Yeah. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is I think that like people often think of war um, or wars being fought for oil, to the point that's become pretty much a cliche. And the, probably the biggest case of that is the Iraq War, which you've written a great deal about. So I was wondering if you could break down for us just exactly how that happened, how it was a war for oil. Yeah, because I, I think that actually gets lost.
1: Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I I wrote about this in two books, in The Bush Agenda and The Tyranny of Oil, and have written um a, a lot of articles on the topic and my overriding um you know point that I that I drive home is that this was a, you know this was not a war that was only fought for mm-hmm. oil there were other reasons and that is usually how wars happen it's very difficult to build up a constituency that is willing to go to war unless you can point to a lot of reason, a lot of winners potential winners, mm-hmm. right so there were a lot of different interests that put us into the war in Iraq. but the first thing t- to say is um, it wasn 't a war about september eleventh because what 's very clear is that the planning for the Iraq war began well before uh, september eleventh mm-hmm. occurred
0: and um, who did that planning? and the
1: So the the people who became all of the lead members in the Bush administration had spent years talking about and planning um, and and stating that they they wanted to go back to Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein after the failed uh, intervention of the senior Bush administration. So that would be during the Clinton years, am I right? No, not during the Clinton years. So these were all of the people who were out of office in between. So when the Clinton administration came into power, all of those Bush senior folks who then became Bush junior folks were out of office plotting. And one of the things they were plotting, and they were very clear the thing that they were plotting to achieve was American empire. Those were their words. They were very clear about it. That was their intention. And they um, really wanted to go back to Iraq. That was sort of a central location. With these players, their relationship to the oil industry uh, was always intense, but it was really with George W. Bush. You know, the oil industry spent more money on any election, any presidential election up to that point, to get George W. Bush in office. There's only two presidents in U.S. history who had who came out of the oil industry. That's George Bush Senior and George uh, and and the younger George Bush. Um, Dick Cheney, uh, the vice president, had of course had a tenure at the head of Halliburton, the, largest, the world's largest energy services company. George W. Bush, uh, his longest career was actually running um, the, the Texas uh, baseball team. But other than that, uh, he had also um, worked in the oil industry like his father. And they got these oil men into office. And then the industry was both solidly within the administration and outside of it pushing uh, and to gain greater control of oil and the central location for doing that was Iraq. Yes. Um, and. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. I hate it. So in these rooms planning this uh, basically second coming of the Iraq war, because um, I think I'm old enough to remember the first one, Desert Storm. I don't
0: know if everybody <laughs> else does. Um, you mean Operation Desert Storm? Yes, yes.
2: I do remember <laughs> Operation. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Um, and how that was supposed to have been like, you know, mission accomplished. We did it. And then
0: mm-hmm.
2: how much oil was in these rooms planning the second um, part two of this?
1: Part two. So so um, just within days of taking office in 2000, so of course, September 11th wasn't until September 11th, 2001. So within days of taking office, um, the members of the Bush administration formed under Dick Cheney's guidance, the Cheney, um, ener- what became known as the Cheney Energy Task Force. And ev- every leading um, oil company CEO uh, participated in that task force, as well as oil industry people within the administration, such as Dick Cheney, and what we know is that from the earliest days, um, one of the things that they did within the task force was look at a series of maps and lists that listed out all of Iraq's oil fields, and there was a list that was called foreign suitors for Iraqi oil, so at this stage, Iraq's oil was closed Uh, to Western oil companies, it was closed to all foreign oil companies because of the sanctions imposed on Saddam Hussein as a result of the first Gulf War. But Hussein was in discussions with oil companies from China, uh, with oil companies from France, Mm -hmm. with oil companies from other countries, that if the sanctions were lifted and there was a good chance that they might be at this point, all of that oil would go to all of those other countries and companies And the US and the British, in the form of BP, would be shut out. And we know that the war planning also began at the same time. And then those same people, those same um, uh, CEOs who um, worked at oil companies and executives who worked at oil companies then were put on the ground after the invasion to run Iraq's oil company and were put in places uh, within the U.S. government and outside of the U.S. government to write out what Iraq's oil future would look like and who the oil would go to. And the end result of that was Exxon, Chevron, Mm -hmm. BP, ConocoPhillips, phillips Halliburton, all got access to the largest oil fields in the world which they had been shut out of prior to the prior to the invasion so it was a very wow. successful war from their perspective mm-hmm.
2: and you wow. said something about um american empire like that that was their explicit goal can you say a little more about what they meant when they said that
1: And hey, they wanted um they wanted a world in which the us military was you know used to secure a, a, a rebirth of, of, of american empire it's a, it's a trump's america first you know concept uh, just a little less simplified i guess mm. <laughs> they wanted to rule they wanted to rule the world I and mean, that's it's very simple uh, you know they had a lots of great theories around why that was a good idea, but they were very explicit that the U.S. military and the U.S. government uh, were tools of empire building. Now, I'll say Trump's model is different. Uh, It's not driven, it's driven, it's it's a combination of isolationism and America firstism, so it's not, uh, doesn't use the military at all in in the same way uh, as the Trump, excuse me, as the Bush folks Mm -hmm. did. Um, But also, The Bush administration worked hand-in-hand with an oil industry that had also had 150 years of experience working hand-in-hand with militaries around the world. So the oil industry and the militaries are very united in their objective, and the oil companies also saw the U.S. military as a tool of their objectives. So the one thing I would just say is I do not believe that the Iraq War was a war- that was fought because the United States believed that control of Iraq's oil was good for the U.S., that it would bring more oil to the U.S. in that, in that way. Uh, I believe that it was for the oil companies to have control of the oil to then do with what they would want to do and for the profits that they would generate from that. But from the perspective of the U.S. government, it was to deny the power of that oil to other
0: uh, countries that's other governments an interesting right? point of differentiation yeah that's really interesting that it's it's not even so much to get it for america but to stop you know other uh, <laughs> getting in there that's interesting
2: i mean as a petty bitch myself
1: <laughs> you know, yeah yes yes
2: oh, I, I, would, <laughs> Instruct I would do some shit like that not, gonna lie.
1: <laughs> not with oil not with oil yeah I think that um you know they um wanted to deny so uh, Saddam Hussein had been someone who was very much within control of the US government for decades and was a creation of the US government. He then became rebellious and powerful in his rebellion. And he had a lot of power in that rebellion because of his oil. So um, getting rid of his, you know, that the, the potential that, they, that the US government believed that he had, or the Bush administration, excuse me, believed that he had to unsettle US strategic interests across the Middle East was dealt with by taking away him and taking away his oil. But it also, again, explicitly served the interest of U.S. oil companies um, to gain access to the world's largest pool of oil at a time when their biggest problem at that time, this is before Before the gates were unleashed and the policies eliminated that kept them away from lots of other places where there was oil, we used to have a fair bit more restrictions on, on where oil companies could go for oil. So you didn't have the fracking boom at that time. You didn't have the same level of access to offshore drilling. You didn't have the same level of access to tar sands. This was a time when there was a great concern that there wasn't enough oil and certainly that the oil companies didn't have enough oil. So they saw this prize as necessary, vital to their survival and they yeah. got it have you that's super interesting have you seen the
2: dave chapelle skit about the iraq war antonia
0: no oh, i really? haven't I... what about people who say you're only interested in the middle east for oil what huh oil who says
3: something oil bitch you cooking oh
0: President Bush met with U.N. Secretary-General Kofi Annan and made it clear the U.S. will act, even if the U.N. is
1: reluctant.
3: U.N., you have a problem with that? You know what you should do? You should sanction me. Sanction me with your army. Oh, wait a minute. You don't have an army. I guess that means you need to shut the f- up. That's what I would do if I had no army. I would shut the up. Shut the f- up. I got a coalition of the willing. I got 40 nations. Ready to roll, son! Like who? Who said that?
1: Huh?
3: Huh? Like who? England. Japan's sending PlayStations. Sankonia said they're willing to drop bombs over Baghdad. A Row is coming. Africa, Bambata, and the Zulu Nation. That means I'm not doing this by myself, and I'm not disrespecting the UN, even though they don't got no army. Oh, sell some
2: medicine, bitches. <laughs> Trying to get that all. Oh, ho! like it slips out. Um, but so, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that this was never about
1: uh, weapons of mass destruction or human rights. It was certainly never about weapons of mass destruction mm, or human no. rights. Absolutely, it was. It was about Israel. It was about, mm. um, you know, there were other things that it was also about. Right. Um, uh, it wasn't, you, you can't, it's like I said, it, it's very hard to get the United States to launch a war. You got to come up with a lot of reasons for it. Mm. Um, but I believe that their over, their overriding interests, those that perpetrated the war, um, you know, one, one of the key overriding interests was to get the oil. And I'll just say in the, the first Bush administration, for example, was completely upfront about this. There was a memorandum for the war that was said, you know, we can't allow Saddam Hussein to you know, get this mm-hmm. oil. And, and that first administration, the difference was that the oil industry, I believe wasn't as um, needing of the war at that point. So the war kind of stopped short and the second Iraq war didn't stop short. <laughs> it kept mm-hmm. going, you know, full in invasion, full in occupation, full in write the, you know, write the new rules, including the new rules for controlling, controlling the oil. Uh, you know, stay there, occupy it. You know, this was uh, you know where where the first Iraq war was kind of a like tepid. You know, maybe if we threaten Saddam Hussein, we'll go. I mean, not tepid. If you lived in Iraq and were an Iraqi citizen or a member of the military, you had to fight the war. But tepid in comparison <clears throat> to this to the second Iraq war. In the second Iraq war, I believe the oil industry in particular mm-hmm. um, yeah. needed this war and 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 so yeah. got it. Wow. Um. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: I feel like, well, I just feel like this this is, um, is such a, a kind of typical thing that happens where um, there are all of these different drivers, right? Like you have the oil companies are pushing for something. You have this concern that Saddam is going to um, use the power of having all this oil to, you know, tell the U S to fuck off. Uh, you have concerns about Israel. You have, you know, just like all of these things coming together. And so I don't know, I feel like, I feel like we often do this thing where we want a simple story. So we want to say, Oh, the U S is hungry for oil and that's why we just invaded Iraq to take it. And it's like, "Mm, kind of, but there's more to it. Yeah, there's some. (laughs) Well, and I think also, I think that also, um,
1: you know, that line, missed a lot of the point, which is that it, because that also became this, oh, there's perhaps there's a good reason for the war because the U S needs oil and Iraq has oil and we should get that oil. That's good for us. Um, that really wasn't the motivation that U.S. imports of Iraqi oil didn't change dramatically during this time. Um, it, it, the U.S. oil companies weren't securing Iraq's oil for America. They were securing Iraq's oil for themselves. And they sold it to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Like they sold it around the world. They didn't sell it to us. Right. Or they sold some of it to us, just the same amount. Um, and so whereas, you know, say World War II or, you know, earlier wars were had a much more of a The United States is is tromping around the world, and one of the reasons why it's doing it is to secure oil for itself. That was not the case by the time we get to um, the Iraq war.
2: Yeah, you know what I can't get off my mind is that at the time that they're doing this um, and causing all of this destruction, at least largely in the name of oil, they knew
1: about climate change. Sure, I mean, I or and certainly yes, I mean, so that's a brilliant point. So the oil companies, you know, back in um, you know the mid '70s, uh, knew that the burning of fossil fuels. Not only cause climate change, but would have devastating Mm -hmm. effects through the through the warming of the planet. This not just aware of it, but aware of the harms. And then you know, at the same time, you know, as you suggest, are you know, not only are only with Exxon, uh, you know, then sits on that knowledge, then funds the the denialist Mm -hmm. movement that denies that knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, but is also you know, tromping around the world. Uh, to to acquire more oil and putting us through, you know, a, a devastating war. I think also, you know, maybe for younger listeners, the, the, the human and environmental and economic and social and political cost of the Iraq War is, you know, just incalculable. You know, just lives lost, nation <clears throat> destroyed, a region destabilized. Um, you know that you know and so i think that it's it's worth looking at that and i and i also and i think it's important to always talk about afghanistan within the context of iraq because to me the members of the bush administration as i said had intended to go to war in iraq september 11th happened and the perpetrators of september 11th were in afghanistan so September 11th provided what became the excuse for the invasion of Iraq, but it didn't really make sense because the perpetrators of the war weren't in Mm -hmm. Iraq. The perpetrators of the war were in Afghanistan. So if you want to invade Iraq on the idea that it's about September, September 11th attacks, but you're not invading Afghanistan, that doesn't make any sense. So I believe that we invaded Afghanistan as simply a... Uh, see, we do care about September 11th. (laughs) Look, we're invading Afghanistan. And now we're going to invade Iraq because, see, that's clear that it's about September 11th. And of course, then that is the double enormous global tragedy, the longest war the US has ever been engaged in, the devastation of the the Afghanistan war, of course, to the people of Afghanistan, the soldiers who had to fight there, the region, again. um, So I reported across Afghanistan looking at the role of oil and gas in that war, and in that war, it was really just this sort of um, attempt at a at a bonus. Like we're in Afghanistan, there is oil and natural gas here. Let's see if we can get it, and that never happened because Afghanistan was a. Ter- I mean, both wars were, of course, terrible decisions to make. But Afghanistan, there was just no way that the United States, if it had learned any lesson from anything in the past, was going to do anything in Afghanistan other than create greater harm. Um, and it was never been stable enough to get oil and natural gas. So, if you are someone who believes that oil and natural gas are, you know, useful or, uh, you know, would be good for the economy, or whatever. There was just never enough stability ever achieved in Afghanistan to ever really pursue the oil and natural gas instead, as I reported on sort of traveling across the north of Afghanistan um, it became a, a a point of confrontation where the Taliban was also focused on these areas because the u s government was focused on these areas and it was creating even greater uh, instability uh, that that the U S government was interested in pursuit of, of the oil and natural gas in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's such a sad story because the effects of these wars are still happening today, right? Like that's a big part of why they're incalculable. Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading a story that came out this summer about um, the health impacts for people who live in, um, I believe it's Basra, um, in Iraq, is that right? Did I get that name right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and how there's like open flaring, and like there are children who have never seen uh, darkness at night um, because there's open flaring from all the natural gas wells. Um, and the cancer rates are just through the roof. Um, but at the same time, Folks have been made economically dependent on, on the oil industry. And so if it leaves, they wouldn't be able to afford their treatment for all the illnesses that they've been left with. And it's just goodness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. It's
0: like, it drives me. It, it's the thing that makes me the most mad when I see the, like, Bush rehabilitation tour happening oh right God. now. <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Like,
0: How uh... do you feel about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, so... This started early on in the Trump administration, which was these sort of voices of reason were coming from the members of the Bush administration, um, which I found, you know, deeply upsetting. There was no way that we were going to get out of the Trump administration by turning to the Bush administration for guidance. Um, I think, you know, I think George W. Bush, the good thing about George W. Bush is that he probably never really wanted to be president and he still doesn't. And so he doesn't say much you know, like he shows up for the inauguration, which he should, I think that's really appropriate that we have. The all bar the is low. Presidents lined the bar in. is low. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I, he, he's kind of like, like I said, he, you know, he ran a baseball team. I think that was when he was his happiest. I wish we'd let him mm-hmm. keep doing that. Um, you know, uh, uh, but fortunately he doesn't say much. I do think, as you're saying, like the rehabilitation of the members of his, his administration is, um, yeah. I mean, deeply worrisome if we're going to learn the lessons of what went wrong there and not, you know, to, to actually undo the harm that's happened within the Trump administration. Yeah. That's
0: not, it just also reminds me so much of, um, you know, I just finished this reporting project on Chevron and Ecuador mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, Texaco before that and everything that, that they left behind there. And I think that, um, that we don't talk enough about uh, oil colonialism in general, mm-hmm. and just the long arm of that, you know, like how, like that, it's not just that oh, the um, like oil companies go in and they drill and they create, you know, this sort of immediate set of problems, but that it's it's mm-hmm. um, it kind of sets countries and communities on this course forever, right. you know, like these. Um, tribes in Ecuador were a lot of them were, had contact with the Western, like with the you know sort of American world, yeah. <laughs> forced upon them in this way that like has continued to cause problems long after the oil companies leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm curious about your take on that stuff too, Antonia. I know you've looked at sort of the the colonialism side of the coin too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah and I I think that the story of Chevron and Texaco and Ecuador is a really important story. I've also reported from Ecuador on that um, on that piece and also um, the expansion of oil operations not just in in the region um, you know this is, you know decades long pollution and just you know how do you summarize Chevron in Ecuador? I think you know basically just just operating with impunity and using the worst practices possible within indigenous lands in Ecuador and just enormous pollution over decades and decades and decades um, and fighting still for the um, requirement that it pay a judgment of nearly $10 billion for that cleanup, which it refuses to pay. And the, you know, I think the story of oil, um, oil expansion across the United States And across the world is oil companies um, partnering with governments and militaries or police forces or private police forces um, to, you know, acquire oil that is primarily found on Indigenous people's lands. So that, you know, so that's, that's sort of like the early history in the United States, I think one of the the key places to look at is the Osage, you know, they became the most murdered population in the United States and the primary mm-hmm. um, reason why was... The, the the success in taking over their oil um, in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and the drive to remove them. And this happened to many Amer- Native American communities, the Ponca in Oklahoma, um, but Native American communities across the United States. One of the uh, reasons why they got driven from specific uh, tribal areas was to acquire the oil where they were located. And of course, in, in murderous fashion mm-hmm. um, at the hands of the US military. And then if you look at, um, for example, um, the Hossocks of uh, Mexico, this was again an early story in the early 1900s where the company that was a Standard Oil breakup piece, Standard Oil of Indiana, which later became BP, just uh, teamed with the um, military in Mexico to decimate this you know, Hasak region, which was uh, described as an Eden in, in the area, in an area that is now uh, Veracruz and Hidalgo, um, decimated the land, m- murdered many of the people, took the land, forced many of the Hasaks to then become forced laborers, uh, to work for the oil, you know, to work for the oil companies. Um, you know, this is a model played out, uh, you know, a- a- across the world. And then just this model of teaming with militaries to acquire and secure oil. So you've got ExxonMobil in Aceh, Indonesia. You've got Chevron in Shell in Nigeria, um, you have essentially the creation of many countries within the Middle East as a result of um, the U.S. and the British divvying up their lands to um, and calling them countries to, to help gain you know, acquisition to their, to their oil. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a story that we can talk about for a long time, but a lot of um, Western power... Is derived from this forcible acquisition of oil mm. on behalf of Western oil companies from Indigenous peoples, you know, around the world. And I think again, where this started originally with Native American communities in the U.S., a lot of this was then offshored so that Americans didn't see this for for mo- for most decades of the history of kind oil. of similar to it the happened Iraq war, right? Yeah. Exactly. And the Afghanistan
2: war, right? Because it's also fought by this, you know, handful of people over and over again.
1: Exactly. So you had oil development taking place, you know, far away from where most Americans saw it and didn't, in in, in nations and communities of color. Um, And it didn't, the costs of it weren't as apparent. And then of course, um, that really changed with the advent of fracking in the United States, where your average American, your white American, became exposed to oil development in a way that people of color, communities of color, and nations of color had been for decades. And most people, when they're confronted with the realities of oil operations, and it's right next to where they live, don't like it, including the CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson at one point had a fracking development planned for near his mansion outside of Dallas. And he didn't like that. So he fought against it. Oh, well, look at that.
0: (laughs) 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 I I was waiting on when he was going to show up,
2: but no, that I, I think that's a really important point. And also this point about, Um, you know, all of these removals and assaults on indigenous people in the name of oil, those are also oil wars. And I don't think that people quite understand them that way. Um, And so, you know, when I see uh, previously uncontacted tribes in the Amazon realizing that they're under attack, and then suddenly there's this viral video of them, you know coming to make war with the oil industry or with the government like that's a that's a war um it's a extremely mm-hmm. unequal war but it's still a war um and like to open up drilling in Saudi Arabia and all of that like that was war too and we don't often think of it that way. And there's other uh, oil wars, too, like the Iraq- Iran War, the Colombian Civil War. I was reading about the Chaco War between Paraguay and Bolivia in the 30s, which was one country's backed by Standard Oil, the other's backed by Shell. Um, So just, you know, these are Mm -hmm. things to remember when you're on social media and you see an ad from Shell or Chevron. They deserve every mean thing you can think of to say to them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you get, there's I, I, to me, there's so many important points that you just raised. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out like where to jump in. I, I think the thing that I think is most important to, to, for, for folks to look at, and it's, it's, it's hard to sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, just like, not, not, knock it all off my, my head and our heads to, to, to share it in, in this type of format, but is to go through and look at all of the examples of the oil industry teaming with and using militaries mm-hmm. um, and supporting and propping up the most brutal dictators in the mm-hmm. world as a means to protect and get oil. And of course, uh, where I didn't end that story is, so more Americans have been exposed to the the harms of the, of the oil industry with fracking. But what then also came around again and hadn't for decades, really since this time of, of the Osage, of the, the Ponca back in the 19, uh, early 1900s, came around again with Dakota Access Standing Rock. So that was the first time we had hmm. seen in decades, in decades. Um, The the use of U.S. military weaponry, because it was the same weapons, literally repurposed weapons from Iraq and Afghanistan um, that were used by the police force in Standing Rock um, against the Native American communities who had risen up against the pipeline, they, you know, stood head to head against this, you know, militarized police force and private security force with assault rifles loaded and pointed at them with snipers sitting in assault vehicles, uh, you know, with guns loaded and pointed at them, um, you know, in a, in a fight to stop the pipeline. And that was an experience that had played out across the world, um, coming home again to the United States, again, at a point where the U.S. industry was sort of that desperate. To need to move forward, that it, that it used used the a militarized force in the U.S. in a way that it hadn't uh, hadn't in mm-hmm, decades.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, Standing Rock, I think, is um, one of the most important movements in the past just decade honestly. Um, it informs so much of what happened in Minneapolis this summer and across the country. It changed the laws about what's critical infrastructure and what isn't. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a critical thing for understanding not even just the climate movement, but where we're going as a country.
1: Yeah. And there was, you know, a great deal of overlap in um, organizing, you know, there was um Black Lives Matter um groups were were, were very present in Standing mm-hmm. Rock, you know, people who'd been present in Standing Rock were on the streets and continue to be on the streets in um struggles for um black justice and, and equity, um in protests for for years from the beginning of from the beginning um uh you know, these have been overlapping movements, and of course, overlapping struggles. Mm-hmm. Where, of course, the you know injustices, the lo- the location of um, production, refineries, transport in the United States, until fracking <laughs> had been you know largely in, uh, of course, in communities of color uh, across the U.S. Across right. U.S.
2: And I believe Standing Rock was about a pipeline going through what was supposed to be independent Indian land, which you can argue is an act of war um, because the U.S. Right. Government- I mean, the tribe yeah. is a nation, right?
0: right? It's a political body and they're breaking a treaty with that nation. And they're supposed to have sovereignty on their land to say no to certain right. permits, you know. Um, right. Yeah, that's. And the U.S. Yeah, government definitely it's...
2: reacted like it was war. I mean, they they went in with overwhelming force. It was horrific.
0: Certainly a lot more force than we saw deployed on the Capitol steps. Well, that's for damn that sure. Much. That is for damn sure. <laughs>
2: So another thing I wanted to talk about some is oil as a weapon of war, Um, because I think we think of oil often just as a catalyst of war, but it it works in another way too, because often armies will destroy um, or preserve oil fields depending on whether they want to take over the country and therefore have the oil fields ready for them to exploit, or if they want to topple the country and therefore not let them you know, have, quote, an economy after the war. Um, and there was some of that in the Vietnam War. There was some of that even in the Korean War. It appears, um, and there was some of that mm. in the Afghanistan War. I think you were alluding to that, right, Antonia?
1: Certainly, there is a, a a motivation for for in wars for oil that is both about get it for yourself and deny it to the to the folks yeah. who have it. Um, then you had this new sort of Trump version, which was in Syria, when Trump sent the U.S. military into Syria in 2019 he literally had U.S. troops protecting oil fields that Assad had sold to the Russians. So they were owned by the Russians and being protected by the U.S. military. that makes sense. And so, yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. So you got like Trump just adds this entire new crazy layer onto everything, which is, I believe, you know, Trump had, it's hard to parse out Trump's motivations other than, you know, self-aggrandizement, self-wealth, and self-promotion and white nationalism and white supremacy. Um, But one certainly way of understanding Donald Trump is understanding his relationship to to Putin. And one of the things that he definitely did was join into an alliance with Putin and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia to ensure, an attempt to ensure the dominance of oil, in particular, and fossil fuels more generally, through their actions together, and I think Trump did that simply in support of agendas that he had for himself in in the Middle East, um, in protection of Israel, which was also about Jared Kushner's financial mm-hmm. ambitions after the or even during the term. Um, but that was you know basically uh that sort of crazy turn of events in Syria, because I you know, again, like Syria is a war where you know I, I think getting to this point that you had that I, I think you know in general, oil companies want whatever oil they right. can get if they can get it, but they have limits, like they didn't go into Afghanistan. It was too dangerous. I don't think you had oil companies sitting saying to Donald Trump, "Invade Syria so that we can get the mm-hmm. oil." Um, it's just too risky, and there's not enough mm-hmm. of it. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, once you're there, would they like it? Sure. But Trump wasn't doing that. Trump was protecting Syria's oils for Syria's oil for Putin, and that was a uniquely Trumpian agenda, which was quite successful. I mean, I think that between Trump and Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, that that team up for four years. They did a lot for, to secure for a lot of the world a continued deep investment in oil and fossil fuels. And fortunately, there is a simultaneous aggressive um, pushback in the other direction, but it's not as easy as I think many might believe it would be to make that transition because you do have very strong governments, even if you have weakening oil companies uh, that still want to maintain oil's dominance yeah
2: you know who i don't miss in the white house donald trump
1: i, <laughs> Who's I that? miss him
2: yeah
1: yeah 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 no that uh, that's uh to say the
2: least. I agree with you. Um, I'm also (laughs) thinking about how oil is often used by rebel groups, um, since, you know, so many of these countries have been fractured by like the Iraq War, the Afghanistan Wars, so many other wars. Um, And they're kind of uh, in a lot of places like Yemen. um, There's a lot of different rebel groups running around and they take Control of different oil fields or different ports so that different oil takers can't um, dock there. Like, I think about, I was thinking about this um, ship um, off the coast of Yemen, at least as of December, where it's The port is controlled by this rebel group that won't allow the ship to dock, which means that um, this tanker's been sitting there forever and it has more oil than the Exxon Valdez. Um, And it's definitely Mm. going to spill at some point if it's not taken out of the water. Um, But like, there's no government intact anymore. And it's kind of used as this pawn and a weapon. covered this stuff a lot. How do you think that we can better cover the relationship between oil and war in the press?
1: I think uh, one of the problems with the way a lot of the media still, and it surprises me that it still happens, covers these issues is in these very strange silos. That you can somehow separate out foreign policy, climate policy, racial equity, Racial justice mm-hmm. environmental policy climate policy um, you have a reporter who covers healthcare care over here you have a reporter who covers racial justice over over right. there you have a reporter who covers business over there and somehow they're still not exchanging notes it's happening more and more it is happening like there is some really great coverage of course that does you know make these linkages but you know it's still it still isn't enough and I think that the best thing that could happen is for your war reporters to be talking to your uh, environmental justice reporters, to be talking to your business reporters, to be understanding those links and better yet, more importantly, reporting on them and explaining them to readers and responding to readers concerns about those issues and to listening to the people on the ground from the very beginning of oil development for 150 years of oil development. Wherever there are people who live where oil is being developed, transported, processed, refined, there are communities resisting. Mm -hmm. Always. Mm -hmm. And they experience war. They experience health devastation. They experience inequality. They experience injustice. And if you listen to them and report from that, you uh, you will make these connections in your reporting. Um, and I think you know that 's actually one of the things that I set out to do with my own reporting was to try and break down those barriers. I created a my own nonprofit uh, it 's a project of the Society of Environmental Journalists, which is uncovering oil and the entire point was to break down those barriers and make those connections and I think that um, you know is incredibly important and I think if we now look towards the Biden administration and reporting on the Biden administration. You see this very, I see this very concerning bifurcation within this administration, which is that foreign policy is dominated by, well, a former member of the military for the defense secretary. We have a former four star general who only stopped being a four star general in 2016. So he had to get a special waiver Mm -hmm. to become defense secretary. He led US forces in the Middle East. He, um, previously served on the board of directors in between his service for two military contractors. And he's the defense secretary. You have um, the national security secretary and you have um, secretary of state who are both interventionists Mm -hmm. at, at heart. Um, And at the same time, you have a government that has put front and center the need to, uh, and fossil fuels, the need to um, combat climate, uh, the climate mm-hmm. crisis, uh, to end systemic racism, uh, to infuse government decision-making with environmental mm-hmm. justice. Um, and these are contradictory. Yeah. And they're not being seen or reported as contradictory. And I think that is deeply problematic, especially as I know something you both wanted to talk about, yeah. how climate change is going to cause, mm-hmm. continues to cause more instability and, and, and potentially. Right. And war.
2: also war causes climate change. Cause it's, yeah, it's really climate intensive. Sorry, Amy, go
0: ahead.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I was just going to say, I, yeah, I feel like that's exactly, that is a perfect example of why I don't think that this whole, like having climate as a beat over here um, works. Mm -hmm. It's not the type of beat that that works Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like you need climate reporters integrated into all of the different Mm -hmm. other desks and not like a whole separate climate desk. I don't know. Um, totally.
1: And and that's what the Biden administration has, you know, has done in domestic policy and even in foreign policy, but in, in foreign policy, it's John Kerry, who's also a you know, not the world's most aggressive militarist, but certainly is someone who is a is, is a centrist militarist, and um, you know, I I think that what's missing is, you know, a, a, as you have framed this entire conversation, is 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 what is the link between militarism and climate change and fossil fuels, and can we proactively see them as things that need to be delinked if we're going to have success addressing the climate crisis and addressing fossil fuels and addressing exactly the, that the administration has said that it wants to
0: address This is the thing that drives me crazy about um, the whole greening the military stuff mm-hmm. too is it's mm-hmm. like I d- yes, fine mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. there's so many casualties on refueling missions that it makes sense to like have packs with solar panels on them right <laughs> there's like that stuff and yes um, war is quite fossil fuel intensive and all of these things and yes you know wars are fought over oil so it makes sense from all of those fronts too but then there's not ever I just I feel I feel like I so infrequently see people make the next step which is like why so much war though <laughs> <laughs> no
1: I'm important point because i have to say uh, something that actually grates on me is when people talk about the united states military is the largest user of fossil fuels in the world that gets said a lot i've never seen that proven but for me the biggest problem is that when that gets said, i actually think to to be honest that that originated with white peace activists who thought that they needed to come up with a way to convince climate folks to be concerned about war. And I just say, if you talk to anyone who's been at the other end of a war, they will tell you about the impacts on their environment, the role of fossil fuels, the role of wars for oil, the role of military being used for oil. They've lived it. So all you need to do is ask them, ask an Iraqi to talk about, was oil part of this war <laughs> and they'll explain it to you very right. well. You know, ask right. a Nigerian what it's like to be at the other end of the gun. Ask anyone who's lived those experiences. And I think if you say, okay, the U.S. military uses a lot of fossil fuels and it's carbon intensive. it it That argument did open mm-hmm. the door to greening the military. President Obama stood in front of a biofuel jet on the same day that he announced a new massive, you know, deepwater oil project, uh, to say, you know, look, we're greening the military. Like I, you know, right? I They've mean, been great. saying it for it's years.
0: Fine. I just, yes, like, yeah. I looked up because I did. I was like, God, I did a series for Forbes on greening the military. <laughs> like it's got to be ten years ago. And yes, in fact, it is ten years old. That story. <laughs> And it was, like, this big thing. Everyone was, like, what? The military cares about, like, oil. And, you know, it was, like, they were putting it. They had already been putting it in the quadrennial reports for, like, years by that point. Yeah. So it's not new to think about this. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I just, think it's
1: unimportant. Yeah. I mean, but I would no, rather no. not fly the jets. Right. Like, right. That, exactly. Don't fly the like not great. Let's fly the jets as long as they're being flown with biofuels. Let's not fly the jets. So let's, you know, so that, you know, to me, it also it just sort of lends itself to um, solutions that aren't actually solutions to the real problem with real problems, mm-hmm. which are um, ending the militarism and and ending the The fossil fuels, and I think if we look at you know, I actually see there's you know a lot of, a lot of ways to talk about the uh, Capitol Hill riots. One of them is that one of the things that we knew was going to happen with the worsening climate crisis is greater instability, more people becoming more um, desperate Mm -hmm. to protect what is theirs Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, that is white supremacy and the things mm-hmm. that come along with it, but to feel insecure in their world, to need strong autocratic leaders, some, some people to come up and say, we're going to protect you because the world is becoming... Deeply, deeply, deeply destabilized, and there are millions of people who don't have homes, who are looking for homes, and are coming into your country. And you can either say, "Oh my God, please come into our country. We, you know, this is wonderful thing to have happen," or you can say, "Oh my God, I'm terrified of these people coming into my country, and shut the door. And who's going to help me shut the door? And who's going to help me keep them out? And if I keep them out, that'll stop all these other problems that I don't want to see happen. And who's going to, you know, protect me? And greater." instability, insecurity, pandemics, um, are part and parcel to a a worsening Mm -hmm. climate. And I think that until we confront the nature of that, um, who's holding on to what, why are they needing to hold on, uh, you know, we're, we're missing a key piece of, of the, of the climate crisis. And of course, uh, uh, you know, a fundamental part of that and what we're talking about is, um, Uh, people. People. um, So for example, in uh, Syria, Syria is certainly a war that has many causes, but one of them is the worsening climate crisis, which created drought, which ended access to agriculture, which forced people into cities, which created these conflicts within those cities, which helped lead to instability, and war fighting and we are just going to see you know there are many many more places in the world across central america across south america across africa uh, the african continent across the russian continent across the united states where drought um is forcing people to leave to move and when people leave and move and we don't respond to that with open arms the other way that people respond to it is with arms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: Eco-fascism thing, too, that, like, the way that... I, I think you're already starting to see people... Um, on the right wing in particular going from climate change isn't happening to climate change is my reason for hating immigrants
2: immigrants (laughs) and and black people and jews and all of Mm -hmm. these other people Mm -hmm. like it becomes this sort Mm -hmm. of like well if there's so and and it's it it gives people a way to rationalize their their hatred right because it's like i mean i wish it wasn't this way but if there's only going to be so many resources i'm going to protect me and mine and who can possibly blame me
1: for that um Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's terror it's it's a terrifying development and it's and it plays out you know like basically you could see you know victor orban of hungary um you can see the, the the trump in the united states you know the rise of autocratic uh regimes mm-hmm. that many of which are a response to fear of immigration um, and and our strong white men who stood up to say you know i'm going to stop Vladimir Putin, I'm gonna stop immigrants from coming into our country and I'm gonna suppress uh, indigenous uh, people and peoples of color within my own country. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, that response to, to, to climate change is where, you know, to, to me, you know, sort of for the biggest, one of the major areas of fear and concern, you need to be fear and concern, because yeah. that's gonna get, the movement of people is going to get worse. Or better, depending on how you see it, maybe it 's a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing. people you know moving from country to country, if they are given you know access to resources and care and support, that can be a beautiful, wonderful thing right. um, uh, that could be a beautiful outcome of where we are, um, or it can be this sort of horrific thing, and that 's where I am concerned that we have a foreign policy team within the Biden administration that doesn 't say you know um, we need, you know, we really, really putting front and center the necessity of um, diplomacy, you know, uh, at, at, the, at the center, at the core of, of their, you know, what makes them tick. You know, Sullivan, you know, he'll, he'll say, you can say lots of things about the Obama administration, but one of the things about the Obama administration that, is that Hillary, Hillary Clinton was one of the more hawkish secretaries of state you know, in a democratic regime in, in, in a while. And Sullivan was her, you know, sort of right-hand man. And that makes me quite concerned. Antony Blinken makes me concerned. You know, I, I, I just, I, I think that they both have a very good approach to Iran. And if we can talk about Iran and oil for a long time. Uh, that's also very important. Um, and I'm glad that they have a essentially peaceful focus towards Iran and I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that they're not um aggressively siding with Saudi Arabia against Iran which both Trump and Bush mm-hmm. did uh, what is that what is the obsession with Iran <laughs> that's a great that's a great way of <laughs> putting it um uh Iran has you know after Iraq uh, and Saudi Arabia, well, now, actually, sorry, I'm gonna sort of scratch the way that I framed that because the world has shifted a lot since um, Iran's oil reserves were at this tier top tier. Um, but it is still one of the largest oil reserves in the world, a, a country that's basically been defined by Western powers trying to control it, succeeding in controlling it to get its oil. Like that's a lot of the history of Iran is, is, is foreign powers, the US, Britain, um, Controlling that country for its oil, and I think that uh, you know Iran has the potential to be the key challenger to Saudi Arabia in the region, just like Iraq had had the potential to be a key challenger to Saudi Arabia. And if you want to remove that, and of course Iran is aggressively anti-Israel. Um, if you want to, if you want Saudi Arabia and Israel to uh, be preeminent, a weakened Iran is, is into important the to that. If you, uh, and and of course, uh, yeah, and, and also, so one way to deny Iran of its power, its power is to deny it of the, the wealth of its oil. Um, and I think that um, the Trump administration was certainly intent on that. The Bush administration was certainly intent on that. I think w- I know that Western oil companies would love to get their hands on Iran's oil, but it also has an incredibly powerful military and incredibly uh, strong government. Uh, it it may or may not have the capacity for nuclear weapons, Um, so it was not nearly as easy a target as Iraq, but it was the target after Iraq. So after Iraq, the Bush administration was very clear that after Iraq was Iran. Um, The Trump administration, I think, was made very clear that it had intentions, hopes, certainly through John Bolton and others, to attack Iran and just never had... I think there was the one thing that unified the Trump foreign policy in the early days of it was a desire to... um, go after Iran, potentially militarily. In the very beginning of the Trump administration, Trump dropped um, what is the largest bomb that we have. It's called the mother of all bombs is the name of it. (laughs) Um, And he dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan and people were uncertain, including myself, as to why he dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. And I think it was as a test to see uh, what it looked like, and should we use it in Iran? And it just never came to be. The Trump administration was, thank God, too disorganized to um, or there, or there wasn't the will to do it. Uh, but that's you know still there. So I think one of the really good things about these members of the Biden administration is they don't want war on mm-hmm. Iran. I'm sure about mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, holy, this is just. It's like. Our our little rise of ecofascism now is just like kind of chickens coming home to roost. Been the shittiest possible mm. way for any person of color here, because like that's not my chicken. Um, mm. So mm, mm, mm-hmm, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: yeah, and I think you know we th- those who are suffering the greatest costs of fossil fuels in the climate crisis are those who contributed the least to it and i think that you would not have the climate crisis if you didn't have racism and racial right. injustice you wouldn't be able to place these operations where you're placing them uh, you know fight wars in, in in and and use the military in nations of color and communities of color uh, put these operations in those locations uh, without obviously systemic racism and, in- and inequality. And if you didn't have that, you couldn't you couldn't have these you know dirty and polluting operations and these wars uh, and, and you wouldn't have the climate crisis. I think that's certainly, certainly, certainly true. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. yeah. And honestly, that was why I wanted to to do the show is because um, you were saying earlier, like ask a Iraqi, ask a Nigerian. I saw someone on Twitter say like, I hate it. The fossil fuel industry long before i knew about climate
1: change because of what they did to my country mm. I, mean, I think that's an incredibly important point and for me where that where that becomes such an important point um, is looking at right what are the solutions so right now we've got oil companies that are saying we're going to be the solution mm. um, we're going to become green energy companies yeah. and you can trust us to help yeah, you make please. the transition. and you know, I think there are many reasons to be dubious of that assertion. Um, one is, I think, you know, to, to look at these issues of human rights abuse. I, can I read from something yeah. that I that I wrote, which is a, um, so this is a, a case, um, John Doe v. ExxonMobil Corporation, which is from Aceh, Indonesia, Among the plaintiffs, all of whom use aliases out of fear for their lives is John Doe 2. According to the, to the complaint, in August 2000, soldiers working for ExxonMobil beat and tortured him using electricity all over his body, including his genitals. After approximately three months, the soldiers took off the blindfold, took him outside the building where he had been detained, and showed him a pit where there was a large pile of human heads. The soldiers threatened to kill him and add his head to the pile. He was ultimately released, only to have the soldiers return later and burn down his head house now this case is one of many where the principal argument that exxon mobil is making chevron made a similar argument um, in in accusations of gross human rights abuses against it in nigeria they don't argue that the events didn't happen they argue that they're not liable for them as the parent company Mm -hmm. same as ecuador Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if this, if this happened, this is a complaint, but based on all of the evidence that I have seen and based on all of the evidence on the actions of uh, the Indonesian soldiers at this time, it is a very good bet in my mind that it did happen. Um, and, you know, this sort of role of human rights abuse is certainly not isolated. Um, uh, to these locations. And and certainly, if you look at the governments that the, you know, ExxonMobil, Chevron, um, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips have have supported, particularly ExxonMobil, um, you know, these are, as I said in the beginning, some of the most brutal regimes in the world. So, so first, you just have to look at the behavior of the mm-hmm. companies, you know, how they have chosen to act. And then you say, how have they chosen to act with this resource. So it's important, I think, to reflect that oil, natural gas, and coal, for that matter, are natural resources. They're not renewable, but they're natural resources. Humans have interacted with these resources and cohabitated with them and used them for millennia. It's just in the last 150 years that these companies, and it's the same companies, have turned them into these you know, massively destructive Forces. And so, do we really want to turn over to these same companies based on that behavior the sun and the wind and the Mm -hmm. waves? Mm -hmm. How are they going to behave in their control of these resources, in their distribution of them, in access to them, in the lengths they'll go to maintain area for? solar fields, you know, the resources that they need to, main, to, to expand. And they certainly have a model that is based on mass consumption growth um, as opposed to equitable distribution, localized control of resources, you know, lim- limiting you know, consumption of energy to a healthier sustainable way. Um, and so even if you look at sort of the best promises right now, BP is probably going the furthest in what it's promising it's going to do and how it's going to transition, even in it, its best model, its best vision of what it intends to do, two thirds of its, uh, operations are still going to be oil and natural gas 30 years in the future. Yeah, totally. I think, um,
0: I think that is the, the thing that, um, I don't know, I, I've, feel like we can't repeat enough is just that like why I still feel like there's so many people who think oh it's fine BP and Exxon will just become solar companies and it's like they they have given us no reason to want them in charge of energy period (laughs) Or anything else. You right. know, it's like right. they have, I don't, it's like saying, oh, Mitch McConnell is going to compromise. No, he's not. No, he's not. Like, come on, wake up. Yeah. You know, right. it's just not, there we have no evidence that shows that they will do that. And we have decades worth of evidence that shows that they will do everything they can to just protect their profits and like, you know, screw everybody over. So why would we entrust them with this like, incredibly important complicated thing that is so easy to get wrong in so many ways um i just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah
1: well i think it's this idea that the answer to our problem is replace keeping everything the same and replacing
0: fossil yes. fuels
1: with renewables and then everything the will be fine exactly And yeah i think that exactly that's at the the heart of it's
0: the power structure, not the power source, people. Like, it's so frustrating. It's yeah. like, how many times, how many examples do we have to see before we realize that? I mean, I feel the same way about um, the electrification push. It's like, okay, so who's going to be in charge of that? Who's going to be in charge mm-hmm. of lithium? What happens when, you know, okay, so Bolivia has a ton of lithium are they going to benefit from that? Are the Bolivians going to become a superpower or are we going to have like U.S. companies go in and try to, to like own their resources before <laughs> they can even mm-hmm. mine them, you yeah. know? Um, and yeah, okay, then we're going to be dependent on that resource and who's going to, mm-hmm. you know, I just, it's, uh... yeah.
1: I think, you know, it's, 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 it's it's, it's important that we, you either... know, it's sort of looking at, so what are the steps along the way? I think many people think, you know, basically we have to act now, we have to act right away. The oil companies have the infrastructure. If they, if they just shifted, then, you know, we would get this sort of massive quick response. And for me, there's, you know, some logic to that, but it's only if you trust those companies. And again, I come to the inequity of their distribution model. Mm a model that is based on constant growth and we can't consume any energy source in the way that we consume fossil fuels. It's, it, we, we can't survive as a planet or a species if we continue to consume in the way, and we, by we, I mean, you know, primarily uh, wealthy white mm-hmm. nations that are doing all of the, you know, like 99% of the consumption. So we, can, we those, those people and nations cannot continue to consume in that manner any, energy source. Um, What we need to do is live in a much more healthy model of energy consumption, which is, and which is much more equitable, which is localized, equitably distributed, uh, um, uh, equitably resourced, and live, um, you know, in, in, in healthier models of how we Move around uh, and how we consume products and how we use agriculture and all of these things. I'm just going to keep using the word healthy. Are healthier for us? They're better for us. They're going to make our lives happier right. and healthier. Um, but they're going to remove power mm-hmm. from you know places that, that that have a tremendous amount of power. And I do think you know sort of speaking of power and politics, there is this opening with the Biden administration where I think the reason why I think it's opened up is because I so. I think the biggest, one of the biggest differences in power between Obama slash Biden and Trump slash Bush is that Trump and Bush, Bush even more so, well, Trump as well, um, were tied financially to the fossil fuel industry directly and in, in doing its bidding uh, to the T on everything. Obama and Biden are tied to the finance industry, and one of and one of the brilliant, Things that the climate movement and, and environmentalists have been doing, environmental justice movement has been doing, indigenous movements have been doing, is working to break that link between the finance sector and the fossil fuel sector, so that they are, for the first time in 150 years, not deeply intertwined with one another, but rather, you know, through divestment movements, aggressively delinked. Mm-hmm. So the, the finance sector is now, you know, really extricating itself under the pressure of movements and under the pressure of the success of replacing fossil fuels with other resources where it's where the financial sector is making money is delinking itself from fossil fuels so if you have a finance sector that is no longer particularly interested in the fossil fuel industry then you have an Obama and a Biden you have a Biden administration excuse me now that is freed from that link Mm -hmm. as well Uh, it's, you know, so that it now has a type of freedom from those that back it, um, to move from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a reality in that that didn't exist during the Obama Mm -hmm. era. Um, and I think that, you know, makes me hopeful that we actually are going to see real change from fossil fuels. Then the question is, you know, is that next step also going to be taken, which is that how do we have... A, you know, a truly just and equitable transition, which will be the healthiest and the safest and the sanest mm-hmm. for all of us, if we if we do in fact do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs>